The following is a message by Dr. Brian D. Estelle from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks and praise, for indeed you are the one true God. You are kind, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness to those that you have called to be your own people. And we thank you for that revelation of yourself. We ask that you would be with us as we meditate upon this important subject throughout this semester, and upon your word even this morning. We also pray, O our divine physician, that you would be with our Dear friends, the Jaspers, be with Daphne and be with Steve, who has been diagnosed with meningitis. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would draw near to them, as you have already so clearly and abundantly evidenced in their lives that you have worked faith in them, you have worked a robust courage in the midst of their afflictions. We would beseech you, O Lord, that you would continue to do so and that you would heal him from this meningitis and allow him to be released uh, soon. Be with our sister Daphne, give her strength and courage during this time as well. Father, you do all things well, and we ask that you would indeed grant us reverence and humility before your word this morning as we meditate upon it, for we know without that we cannot understand your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, For our brief meditation this morning, I've chosen uh, a proverb, Proverb 26 Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. This little chapel meditation will be somewhat different than my colleagues' meditations, at least if they're following the advice of their boss, uh, and who would like to see uh, modeled before the student how to um, deliver God's word before people. This is kind of a framing orientation to the subject of wisdom literature and Christian liberty, so it might sound more like a lecture than it should, um, but that's for a good reason. Proverbs 26, verse 4 and 5, this is the very uh, word of God. Please give careful attention to it. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also will be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he will become wise in his own eyes. First of all, by way of introduction, it sounds when you read this proverb like the writer is talking out of both sides of his mouth. After all, you're supposed to answer a fool according to his folly, and then you're not supposed to answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. There's been a lot of ink spilt over this particular uh, proverb because it has perplexed people and vexed them for a long time not knowing how to explain it. The Talmud uh, wants to resolve this conundrum by saying that verse 4 applies to matters having to do with worldly things and verse 5 has to do with matters having to do uh, with religious engagement or subjects. 
Therefore, these are two apparently antithetical pieces of advice, and they're made clear by assigning them to different topics or different subject matters, albeit not evident, uh, evident in the scripture itself. This seems to me to be an exegesis born of desperation. I don't see it anywhere in the page, but nevertheless, I suppose it's one solution. We'll return to this passage at the end of this morning's meditation, but first of all, I want to talk about the occasion for this series. I have three points, so I am following my illustrious leader's example in one respect. So the occasion for this series is an orientation to wisdom and uh, finally, the origin of wisdom. So an occasion for this series, an orientation to wisdom, and finally, uh, the origin of wisdom. Uh, let's be frank about the occasion for this series, and hopefully not at the risk of embarrassing anybody, because there's been, as always, an extreme amount of confidentiality that's gone on behind the occasion or the presentation of this series. What am I speaking about? Uh, one or more students apparently uh, um, approached the former dean and said that there was a desire for extra instruction on the subject of Christian liberty. And so while maintaining confidentiality on the one hand, nevertheless that topic was brought before the faculty and we had a discussion about it. And the, the uh, result of which was to uh, have a series on Christian wisdom literature or wisdom literature, a series from the wisdom books of the Bible, and touching on the topic of how that might inform Christian liberty. So, throughout the semester, we will be talking about Christian liberty, and the direction given to the faculty is to work from the wisdom books, namely the book of Proverbs, the book of Job, or Ecclesiastes. I don't think that much improvement can be made upon that famous chapter, chapter 20 in the Westminster Confession of Faith, that talks about Christian liberty. And, and so I would uh, encourage you to turn there if you're looking for further instruction and principle. But let me say a few things with regards to Christian liberty and those principles that are brought out there in the confession by means of reading what Calvin had to say, and you hear the same principles come up in Calvin, but I recently wrote a book review of the piety of John Calvin, and so I was impressed, as always, uh, with his rhetorical skill and the beauty with which he expressed these truths. Listen carefully. Under the topic of the purpose of earthly goods, Calvin says the following. And also, we cannot avoid the things that seem more to serve pleasure than necessity. We must therefore hold to some measure so as to use them with a pure, clean conscience as much for our need as for our delight. The use of God's gift is not misdirected when referred to the end God created and destined them for, since he created them not for our harm, but for our good. Accordingly, no one will hold a straighter path than he who earnestly looks to this end. But if we ponder to what end God created food, we will find he willed to provide not only for our need, but also for our pleasure and recreation. Thus for clothing beyond necessity, he considered what was proper and appropriate. For grasses, trees, fruits, beyond the various uses he has given for us for them, he willed to gladden our sight by their beauty 
and give us still another pleasure in their order. For if that were not so, then the prophet would not have reckoned among God's blessings that wine gladdens the heart of man and oil makes his face shine. Scripture would not have mentioned here and there to commend God's kindness, that he has given all these goods to men, and even the good qualities that all things have by nature show us how, to what end, and even to what point we ought to enjoy them. Do we think that our Lord would have given such beauty to the flower as meets the eye, and yet make it unlawful for us to be touched with some pleasure in seeing that beauty? Away, then, with that inhuman philosophy that concedes to man only the necessary use of God's creation. For this not only senselessly deprives us of the lawful fruits of God's kindness, but also cannot stand without despoiling man of feeling, leaving him a block of wood. On the other side, we must no less diligently resist the loss of our flesh that if not bridled, goes wild. Well, there's the two polar posts, if you will, having uh, to do with Christian liberty. On the one hand, God gives all good gifts for us to enjoy. On the other hand, we ought not to use that as a pretense to give way to our lusts and our basis nature and make an excuse for sin. So there's, um, first of all, the occasion for this series, now the orientation to wisdom. In that context steps Lady Wisdom in all her beauty. The wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible makes a unique contribution to the canon of Scripture. Indeed, I would maintain that without the wisdom literature, we would be impoverished, and God knew very well what he was doing when he gave us the wisdom literature as a supplement, if you will, or part and parcel of the whole canon. There are to be read these books in counterpoint with one another. First of all, Proverbs, then Job, and then Ecclesiastes, or what I call Kohelet, which is the title given to the, to the author. Proverbs demonstrates wise living. There's something stipulatory about Proverbs, isn't there? In other words, it takes the law and it individualizes it and and makes individual stipulations out of broad principles in the law so that we might know how to please God and obey him out of gratitude. Kohelet, on the other hand, emphasizes the transience of earthly life and earthly glory, the inability of mankind to understand the ways of God in the world. Kohelet says, you cannot find it out. The epilogue of Kohelet is crucial to a right understanding of the book. Job, on the other hand, shows, as one author has said, the enigma of calamities that are beyond our control or explanation. As one underappreciated Old Testament scholar has said, it talks about not so much the problem of suffering as how one still clings to God when sitting upon the ash heap of life and remains faithful. Perhaps a little more detail and a brief contrast between the books would be helpful. First of all, Proverbs and Job. 
There is no doubt in my mind that Job is interacting with some of the traditional wisdom ideas in the book of Proverbs about individualizing stipulations in the law and especially in the doctrine of retribution. Namely that the righteous will necessarily get rewards and the wicked too will get their comeuppance, namely punishment. Job says, yes, but life isn't all that simple. Indeed, there are differences between the books. Proverbs, on the one hand, as Derek Kidner says, treats sentence wisdom and sentiments and generalizations about retribution as a spur to faith and faithfulness. Don't go the way of the adulteress because these will be the consequences. The comforters of Job make them a rod for his back. Close quote. What about Proverbs and Kohelet? I like the terminology of one person who calls it creative conflict. Kohelet is in dialogue with traditional wisdom ideas. In other words, all these books are to be read in counterpoint with one another, like a hall of mirrors, like beautiful facets when you turn a diamond so that you see different colors beaming forth. Indeed, Kohelet actually makes some of his sharpest comments in reaction to the clear-cut axioms of Proverbs. Kohelet is brutally honest about the absurdities of life in this sin-cursed world. You may desire to live according to the glory of God. You may even conform your life as much as you can as a sinful creature to his law and his stipulation and his ways. And you will probably still suffer. And things that seem not harmonious, that are beyond the eclipse of your horizon, will sneak up behind you and hit you over the head. Because this is a sin-cursed world. It's full of the common curse. And we know, as we even prayed this morning, that even people who live very pious lives are attacked by disease and death and all the ramifications of death. So for those with great and ambitious plans, says another author, Kohelet warns them that they are in for disillusionment. The book of Ecclesiastes is at root a confession about disillusionment in life and in work in particular. Now I don't want you to misconstrue what I'm saying. Kohelet is not against Proverbs, and neither is Job the enemy of the book of Proverbs. But even so, there's a kind of yes, but theology. Proverbs and what it says, true, but this also should be said, and this also should be supplemented, and this also should be added. So now our orientation to wisdom literature, what is the relationship between law, stipulations, and wisdom in the light of Christian liberty? The fact of the matter is that this is a dialogical relationship between wisdom books in particular, and that it's intentional and it helps us in the Christian life. As I said earlier, I would suggest to you that it is God's way of filling out the canon and giving you a very, very important category for the Christian life and by way of extension, your understanding and practice of Christian liberty. 
Without the wisdom literature, we might all be tempted to be unbalanced theocrats, looking at the Bible as merely a black and white code book in an overly facile manner. This might make us too, too simple when we're wrestling with an issue in the Christian life and wondering whether the activity in which we are about to engage is a God-pleasing thing to do. But the wisdom literature helps us use sanctified wisdom. You see, if one turns wisdom into law, makes it tantamount or equal to mere legal do's and do-nots, this is indeed a dangerous enterprise and especially damning to a healthy view of Christian liberty and a whole host of Christian life issues. This was Ben Sirah's great mistake. You know that apocryphal book that by way of date comes probably towards the end of the wisdom literature. In fact, I would suggest it's in God's good providence one reason it did not make it into the Protestant canon of Scripture. Because he answers the question. Remember that famous question asked in Job 28? Where may wisdom be found? He asked the same question. And his answer was, wisdom may only be found in Zion. In, quote, the law which Moses enjoined on us as a heritage for the community of Jacob, close quote. Fatal mistake, Ben Sirah. Wisdom is not exactly equal to Torah or law. And now there is law exactly equal to wisdom. In an unpublished paper that I heard read at Groningen, at the International SBL, one scholar says the following. Listen carefully. Ben Sirah's merging of Torah and wisdom was a bad idea. Earlier wisdom's commitment to a careful observation as a source of divine truth made the sages unique. Now Ben Sirah tells us it's all in a book, a law book. As a result, wisdom lost its international flavor, becoming much more a nationalistic concern. Roland Murphy, these are my own comments, who was kind of a wisdom doyen, in other words, he made his expertise studying wisdom literature for many years before uh, he died. Roland Murphy observed that Ben Sirah wrote as if the books of Job and Kohelet never existed. The tradition of doubt and severe, honest questioning was lost, replaced with a pious acceptance of, rev of revealed truth. This was a terrible concession on Ben Sirah's part. This guy's a Roman Catholic who's <laughs> writing this. In other words, this is a book in his canon. The wisdom tradition in Israel, by virtue of its uniqueness in the larger Israelite religious tradition, contributed greatly to the continuing development and creativity of Israel. They reminded the rest of the Israelites that other peoples, not only Israelites, had wisdom and could read the book of nature. They reminded the Israelites that everything, even the most sincerely held truths, could be questioned. By completely identifying this wisdom, previously international in nature, with the law of Moses that Moses commanded us, Ben Sirah gave away wisdom's reason to be. So in keeping, close quote, so in keeping with the yes but attitude of Kohelet, I would add that wisdom is an absolutely essential 
factor in the equation of Christian liberty. Enjoying God's good gifts on the one hand, but not giving room for your flesh under the pretense of Christian liberty to enter into or engage in sin and the use of those gifts. See, things are not always black and white, are they? Illicit sex, that's easy enough, clear enough. Drunkenness is a sin. But what about those more gray areas that might require the use of sanctified reason to say whether this is a wise use of Christian liberty? Let me give you an example. I love to rock climb. Unlike those who golf and boast of, you know, the um, glories of the design and architecture of a particular landscape architect with regards to designing a uh, golf course, I can say for every crack I climb, for every face I ascend, I'm following the uh, master architect's uh, great design. And every single one is different. I love to see God's revelation of himself and all his invisible attributes out there in creation. I love the requirement of the economy of motion. My body doesn't bend quite like it did 35 years ago, but nevertheless, I love trying to control my thoughts and say, calm yourself, apply all that you've learned over the years to this particular problem. I can do that with complete liberty of conscience because I've done my apprenticeship. I've paid my dues. But you know what? In certain contexts, there are people who associate rock climbing with an extreme sport in which thrill seekers, death-defying thrill seekers engage for an adrenaline kick. Not why I do it. Oh, do I do it like the adrenaline kick? <laughs> <laughs> but that may require some prudence on my part, right? When I'm discussing it, it might require that I educate somebody in the gallery who might have that particular view, especially when they think a family man upon whom certain children are dependent would engage in this thing if it was perceived as being overly risky. You see my point. So how does all this influence the interpretation of Proverbs 26, the verse with which I open, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. I think the Talmud was wrong. The answer to the correct exegesis of that paradigmatic verse for wisdom literature is this. Circumstances affect a wisdom decision. And wisdom decisions are often crucial when discerning issues of Christian liberty. You see, in some contexts, you might want to answer a fool according to his folly. In other contexts, it may behoove you to be wise and not answer a fool according to his folly. So too, with regards to issues of Christian liberty. 
And now the origin of wisdom, the occasion, an orientation, and finally the origin. You see, ultimately, brothers and sisters, as fallen sinners, we are impoverished in our wisdom. And we do not know, nor are we sensitive to the context to know whether we should exercise our Christian liberty in any given circumstance or whether wisdom would dictate that we refrain. We do not love as we ought. We are calloused to our brothers and sisters around us and the weaker brother and sister sometimes. As sinners, we're naturally navel gazers and we do not exercise charity in our relationships with others. But thanks be to God, which as the apostle confirmed that salvation is not only, has not only found its goal and fulfillment in Christ, but so too has wisdom. In fact, Jesus claims that he is the wisdom of God. And indeed, certain New Testament writers like Paul understand the meaning of Christ's person and word in terms of wisdom ideas. Indeed, as Professor Golden Gay in his insightful works has said, he gives a wonderful illustration. When we're in the wisdom literature, it's like jumping in a fast-moving river downstream that takes us back to our starting point, namely to Christ and the New Testament. Without the example of Christ, we would be lost with regards to whether we should exercise our Christian liberty in a given circumstance or whether we should restrain out of charity for another or sensitivity to a weaker brother and sister. Without the regenerating power of Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we would lack guidance and sensitivity to know when we should exercise Christian liberty and when we should not. Thanks be to God that he has given us this corpus of wisdom literature to help us. And throughout this semester, may he give us further wisdom to know how we ought to act in different circumstances with regards to our Christian liberties. You're dismissed. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.